Technology is not the solution here. Anyone who believes that I'm going to install this new app and it's going to make my company culture better, if you are buying a, a lie, you're buying something that just simply by design cannot work. Um, and so, you know, that's why I'm convinced the, the most important thing we need to focus on, the most important technology we need to focus on is human beings. You're listening to Take Regular Breaks, the positive mental health podcast empowering you to find balance in all aspects of your life. I'm Tanya Diggory. Welcome to part two of Making Work Better with Bruce Daisley. I think this actually moves really swiftly onto a question I was going to ask you around management, you know, and and the perspective and the view of what what makes a effective employee and when you're managing someone, how you motivate them, etc. Because everybody needs to be motivated in different ways, right? It's not just a clear-cut rule. Yeah. Yeah. Very much, very much so. Yeah. So I know that you've done a lot of research around this area too, and I really enjoyed reading the chapter in your book around don't be a bad boss. <laughs> and um, it reminded me of a study that I'd read um, a little while ago, and it was by a third-party exit interview company that did this four-year study um, to um, interview and find out, well, what is the key reason why people tend to leave their jobs nowadays? Is it to do with money or is it other reasons? And with this study, um, they, they they counterbalanced what the beliefs were in terms of, um, you know, what the managers they were interviewing believed were the reasons versus the actual facts and outcome from the um, employees that they'd interviewed. And the belief was that most managers, and this was around 89%, um, believe that employees leave more for money reasons than for other reasons. And the fact was <laughs> that um, in reality, only 12% of employees are reported leaving for money and 88% of employees stated that they left for reasons other than money. And a big reason for this centered around not feeling trusted and valued enough by their managers. So that was a big wake up call. Um, so in your, in your chapter where you talk about don't be a bad boss, and, and this book, by the way, is fantastic. Um, so you cite about 30 or so research-based hacks, don't you, to make work better. And um, so in this research around um, management, um, and I quote, you highlight the misery and stress that bad bosses cause attacks people's health and immune systems to the point where they're actually sick. So why do you think there is such an issue with management these days? And, and why, what do you think gets in the way of managers connecting with their staff? Yeah, um, the professor who's probably the, the leading British workplace expert, Professor Kerry Cooper, he calls this the line manager lottery. Uh, man, bad managers haunt us. Bad managers determine the outcome of our life. During the start of lockdown, I chatted to a friend of mine. I said, how's it going? How's it sort of lockdown at your place he said it polarizes people who've got managers who've got kids get it it's chaos you know we're dealing with sort of a feral farm of hooligans next door managers who haven't got kids are putting us on back-to-back -back zoom calls and believing that we're, we're doing a, a bad job and so you know the line manager lottery has a much bigger impact or well, you might remember in the first year of lockdown we were all queuing outside Sainsbury's for about two hours every day to go and buy a haul of toilet rolls and so you know it was sort of it was very difficult to do your job when you were thinking I can't even put an egg sandwich uh, on, on my plate tonight as it's looking right now. And so, you know, the, the, we needed a degree of empathy and uh, the management job is, is certainly one that requires empathy. The, the critical thing you mentioned there, 
is that it's really important for managers to recognize their they play a pivotal role role and absolutely when a bit like anything else when we feel unloved in life we start believing that success in life is monetary and the uh, i checked to some neuroscience scientists actually really thrilled to chat to these guys who'd built a business focusing on uh, neuroscience and sort of building the neuroscience practice and they said we we all love to be loved but we but we need to be needed wow that really made me sort of think we all love to be loved but we need to be needed and there's there's something in this when we look into um a historic horrible moments in history when we look into the psyche of officers in tyrannical armed forces you know we and we, we all sit there with a degree of trying to understand how would someone get into a situation where they're following those orders and generally what happens in those organizations is they make people feel that they are a vital cog they're, they're needed they're essential the you know, there's a collective calling for them. We, we love to be loved, but need to be needed. And I think there's a really critical part. Generally, when we look at managers' impact on people, people just want their work to be noticed. And so as a consequence, if we've spent hours and days working on something and our boss doesn't appear to read it or appears to brush over it, and we sit there and, you know, we've probably all got a moment where, oh my God, we, you know, didn't really wasn't best advice, but our housemates, partners, friends said, what are you doing? And you said, well, I'm working on this. And then you work all night on it and you submit it and you hand it over or you email it over to your boss and your boss says, great, thanks. I'll look at that later. Just quickly on this. And you think you, this, this dawning realization, they're never going to read that. Mm. That was just created to sort of, to, to cover a need if someone else wanted it. You know, we all want to be wanted, but need to be, but need to be needed. I think it's a really critical thing. And so, you know, my feeling was when it came to, to bosses, quite often the golden rule with bosses is do no harm. So, you know, uh, if bosses only do one thing, actually the best thing they could should be is sort of be enthusiastically supportive. Generally, when we look at bosses who are just those, sometimes we find them frustrating when we had these bosses, but bosses who just say, this is brilliant, this is great, I love it, this is great. <laughs> Generally, when we look at people side by side and we look at the performance over time, people whose bosses just say everything's great, their development is better than the wannabe Simon Cowles, the Gordon Ramses, who are like, this is terrible. You're awful. <laughs> and so, you know, while we might in a moment remember some of our best bosses, almost without exception, often the people who told us straight, they were candid with us, they were honest with us, but they're often really good hype people as well. They... We, we earned their praise, but when they praised us, it meant so much. And I think, you know, this is a critical learning that you absolutely channel your inner Simon Cowell at your peril, because what you generally find is it generally, when we look at the lived experience of people who work with very critical bosses, they spend half their time not really knowing what their boss is criticizing. You know, they, they don't really know why their boss is angry with them, annoyed with them. And so they just spend their life trying to second guess what their boss really wants. Mm. So, you know, bosses really do haunt our lives. But I think just a, a few simple rules can help us, at least if we are bosses, be slightly better at it. Definitely. And I think if there's something to be said for that, you know, that everyone's... I love that, you know, what you said about we 
love to be loved, but we also need to be needed. And I just think the influence and impact that managers have on the lives of their employees is, has such a huge impact. And mm. I think for some managers, I mean, I wonder if some of them get to their positions, they're very, very talented at what they do um, and capable, but yet maybe haven't considered the, the real um, in-depth impact that goes into managing human beings and, you know, exactly. supporting people. And, you know, it's, it's just something that's so important to, uh, to take into consideration. So thank you for your insights on that. And I think, you know, just the, the theme of autonomy that you mentioned at the beginning earlier as well, I think really comes into play here too. Mm. Um, and the, the power of inspiring autonomy in your employees within your team. Um, can you share an example of this done well, either during your time at YouTube or Twitter, or just, you know, from your own experience? Yeah, I mean, the, the research into autonomy is uh, really fantastic. I, th I think, you know, no normally what you discover with autonomy is that people want to know, firstly, that their decisions will stick. So if they make a decision, will it, you know, will it be overruled? Because we learn very quickly in organisations. We, we learn very quickly in families. We learn very quickly in whatever organisation we find ourselves in. We learn... If I do something and someone comes in and overalls it, uh, then as a consequence of that, next time I'm not going to be as bothered about making the right decision or I'm just, I realize I'm playing a guessing game here. So, as, you know, we, we therefore we learn very quickly about the realities. But this, these, there's great evidence about autonomy, about, you know, when you give people the opportunity to, to do their best work. My, my feeling strongly when I was a, a boss at Twitter, I um, I realised that you know I'd hired some fabulous people when we first started. Really, you know, everyone was really energised, excited. You know, a lot of them had worked in other places, but um, they were sort of excited to come and sort of build this new thing. And Twitter was as as new then as TikTok is now. You know, sort of this uh, hot, new, exciting thing. Um, and so my view was that generally, when I've seen people do their best work, it's when they're not in fear of being hacked down afterwards so we created a, a simple rule that everyone knew in our london office which was the rule was blame bruce so if anything <laughs> went wrong if any of our colleagues in america said hang on what's this uh, the rule was blame bruce and so you know like we'd uh, we'd occasionally have people and you know um and we'd sort of be doing things we had to make quick decisions and so, you know, I would say to people, okay, 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 okay. Uh, right, we'll do this. If it goes wrong, it's Bruce's fault. You know, so oh, it was wow. like, it was what they wanted to do. But if it goes wrong, it's Bruce's fault. And, um, and it's quite energizing, actually. Firstly, you know, it's, it's sort of, you know, I, I've always sort of lived with the philosophy that I was going to be fired at some point. And so once you're comfortable with, okay, if I get fired for doing what I think is the right thing, then, okay, that's not a bad that's not a bad outcome. I'd rather mm. go down fighting and, and doing the right thing. Um, but it becomes really energizing because you're like, okay, the only thing that's determining the decisions we're making here is that we think these are the right decisions. So we would put on events and, you know, you know, we would, we would be given a rather stale, we'd keen, keynote, but, you know, PowerPoint template. And so we make the decision, right, we want, you know, this whole event has to feel like the best event people have been to this year. So all the slides, without exception, have to be 
like dazzlingly beautiful. These go, the aesthetics of go run through it. We've got to have moments that invite people to pull their phone out of their pocket from the moment they arrive. You know, what's the reason why people get their phone out of their pocket to photograph something? What's the reason why people get their phone out? Their, you know, it's we created like we need four or five phone out your pocket moments. You know, that was the big thing because at the end of a de- an event. It's an old Harold uh, Macmillan quote. Harold Macmillan was asked when someone was about to give his debut speech in the House, House of Commons. And, you know, he was at the, at the bar mulling over what he was going to say. And Harold Macmillan said, in an hour, people will be back at this bar. And, uh, you know, the only judge is they'll say, oh, such and such gave, gave a good speech. And they'll go, oh, great, great, great. And people say, but what did he say? And it's like, it's, this, it's that reductive summary. So our feeling was, it's got to be really clear what the event is. It's like four or five great moments when people open their phone afterwards, these four or five great photos. And so we, we'd get sent these PowerPoint templates from the US. I was like, yeah, we're not using that. We're not using that. That's <laughs> like, it's dead. It's inert. It doesn't like pop. We want this to be printed on like really glossy paper metaphorically we want this to be um we want this to like you know it's it, it just got a glimmer it's going it's going to feel again to use another metaphor it's going to feel like it's got an amazing filter on it um and so as a consequence of that we'd like okay we're not using that we're doing our own and if anyone asks why blame bruce and you know <laughs> because they'd come to me going we really don't like this template it's like that's fine you know, if we don't like it, we're going to do something. And, and actually, it's quite an energizing way to, uh, to, to run the organization, really. Because yeah. here's the strange thing. Here's the strange thing. Uh, all of the people who worked for me, who created all that incredible work that they were fully capable of creating, um, almost all of them got poached by our team in San Francisco and taken over there. Because the team in San Francisco looked at the work that they were doing it was like this rule-breaking maverick stuff. And there's stuff that the San Francisco team were doing, which was like this conformist, scaled, um, formulaic stuff. They were like, we really love what's coming out of the UK. And they hired all of them. So it just wow. goes to show, really, that I think sometimes we can, we can run for risk aversion rather than for sort of inspiration. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the power of actually just, you know, taking responsibility and having a bit of fun with it. But also, you know, I mean, and someone I admire in the space of um, the research around authenticity and the power of vulnerability and just being yourself as a leader is Brené Brown, you know, and what she talks about with regards to, you know, that, that fine balance between, you know, showing a bit of vulnerability and showing that, you know, you're, you're, being, you're open as a leader, you know, to be a bit vulnerable or be human and just be authentic in your role actually can have a much more um, profound effect on your employees than you may even realize. Um, but it is that balancing act. And I wonder if that also is what some managers may struggle with, that they think they have to, you know, be really strong all the time and show that they're in charge. And like you said, use the kind of Simon Cowell effect <laughs> more than anything else, but actually you know, when you take responsibility and when you do have a bit of fun with it, like in that example, then, um, you know, it can have a really positive uh, impact. Mm, mm. Definitely. Um, and I, I know that you often get asked the question as well, um, what technology do you think will most transform work? Um, now, you know, we hear a lot about technology taking over the future and the world basically just being run by robots eventually. <laughs> but I love that your core belief with this is that the fundamental technology of work is humans. So tell us a little bit about this principle. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, there's no doubt um, 
Kaifu Lee, Kai, Kai Lee is the, uh, the former boss of Google China, and he believes that 40% of all of the jobs that are currently being done can be automated in 10 years' time. So, you know, we're in a situation where automation and machine learning and uh, a lot of the things that we're currently doing right now are going to be displaced. But that's not to say that, look, you know, every previous moment that technology has expanded, the actually the capability of humans is that we've just ascended to higher ground and we've done more evolved things. Now, that's not to say that history is a good predictor of what's coming next. But look, there's no doubt that technology is going to play a bigger part in our jobs going forward. But the really critical thing, the reason why a lot of us are missing the rapport, the the camaraderie, the community of the office is because there, there seems to be something that's that's lost there. You know, when we look into the research about remote work, the research about remote work says that people who work remotely communicate with each other about uh, a fraction, about sometimes a, a tenth of the amount that people who communicate in offices together. And as you're on your 30th hour of Zoom calls this week, you might reflect on how that could possibly be the case. But the um, the, the generally the experience of remote working is that we communicate less. And so the, the really critical thing that, that any of us need to understand is how can we get the best out of, you know, human software, human hardware, and humans are incredibly adept at problem solving, you know, witness the story I gave previously, they're often far more capable of being creative and imaginative and seeing around corners than we sometimes give them credit. Quite often we adapt to the brief we're given though. So if we're given uh, guide ropes of what we can do, then of course what happens is we, we sort of lose a bit of our mojo and we stop building for like those imaginative zingy random ideas. So we, we generally respond to the incentives that are there. But I think the, the critical thing for all of us is that I found myself at a technology firm running a podcast about the, the future of work. And what I would get all the time is that people saying, we've got an app that optimizes workplace culture. We've got an app that makes people happier at work. We've got a technology solution that increases workplace interactions by 20%. And I would look into them. I'd say, I'd love, I'd love to see the research in this. And quite often it was just fake science. In fact, I spent a long time going through one, um, one product which was designed to optimize the recruitment process. Now, this was largely based, well, I suspect it had a couple of engineers, but it was nominally based on a Myers-Briggs personality test. You know, just to be really clear for anyone's benefit, Myers-Briggs personality tests are, are closer to horoscopes than they are to something of scientific value. You, you could take Myers-Briggs this morning, uh, go out and have uh, two, two coffees and a, a run, and you could score a different Myers-Briggs in the afternoon. It has no correlation over time. So we, you know, it's often a reflection of just how we're feeling. And any of us who can recognize that you've got an introverted version of yourself and then also a fantastically extrovert version of yourself will know that Myers-Briggs will just capture you on a certain day. And so this company had created um, a recruitment tool that was like halfway between Nintendo brain training, shout out to the, uh, the old school people who remember yeah, that, and um, halfway between that and sort of this, this personality questionnaire. And there was like, there was some interesting science along the way. It, it gave you 50 faces. You had to read the mood of the 50 faces. There is, there is an interesting bit of science in that, but it, the application of it wasn't very good. 
And what they were doing was creating this recruitment tool. And I was like, okay, right. So I did it. Now, uh, as I said on the, the podcast where I did this, I said, you've got to take it on trust that, you know, um, me, Council Estate Boy, who ended up running sort of uh, a technology company across, uh, across Europe, you've got to work on the basics that, you know, I've done quite well. To ascend from that level to that level, I've done quite well. It's not just like this, this random good fortune. But I would not have hired me based on this result. It said that, you know, I lacked initiative, I lacked creativity, um, <laughs> I probably, you know. And so as a result of that, I'm like, wow, number one, what, ha- what privilege that I'm not having to go- undergo that. But number two, what toxic externality of someone creating these apps that's got no rooting in peer review, it's got no rooting in science, that will claim that this is their secret algorithm that doesn't need to, to, to be assessed. And, you know, the candidates of the future might find themselves not necessarily building their own approach to getting a job into being anything more than, you know, dodging the algorithm learning what are the things that you need to know swatting up for for how to get through the test it really makes me sort of think wow technology and you know i think the story of the last 20 years is technology has plenty of upsides and plenty of downsides but you know um technology is not the solution here anyone who believes that i'm going to install this new app and it's going to make my company culture better you are buying a a lie you're buying something mm. that just simply by design cannot work um and so you know that's why i'm convinced the, the most important thing we need to focus on the most important technology we need to focus on is human beings mm, absolutely hi everyone just wanted to take 45 seconds of your time to mention our karma community online membership platform this is your space to nurture good mental health, to reduce stress, and to embed calm in your work and all aspects of your life. Here you can enjoy 24-7 access to a suite of online well-being resources, from well-being recipes to audio meditation guides, breathwork and yoga tutorials, webinars, monthly virtual workshops, and much more. Sign up to become a member at www.thisiskarma.com forward slash membership. Start your 10-day free trial today and begin your journey to feel happier, relaxed and more calm in your work and life in general. Thank you for listening. And now back to the episode. There's a lot of really concerning research as well around the impact of mental health when it comes to social media and apps and all of these things. And, you know, the importance of setting boundaries for yourself, as you mentioned earlier, boundary setting is so important um, and just how we interact with it. I mean, um, well, what are your thoughts on that as well in terms of making sure that apps and social media, you know, it, that it is balanced in terms of making sure that it doesn't have as much, too much of an impact on your work and your personal time? Um, you know, I, I'm open-minded about that. I, I, I've not seen any research and I've looked into it extensively that says that, that social media specifically is associated with, um, with worse mental health. There is one piece of work that looked at teenagers in California, mm-hmm. and it said that teenagers in California who, who between the ages of 16 and 18, didn't have any um, boredom, actually. That those people who were in a state of constant stimulation generally were less reflective. So the piece of work was done it, it took 16 to 18 year olds in California, and it's, it said that those who didn't have any moments where effectively their brain goes into like a default mode into sort of like a dreamy sort of um, 
cogitation really where your thoughts are allowed to assemble each other boredom would be the closest approximation those at the end of two years had done less less system thinking about their life less system thinking about the environment they worked it lived in and less thinking about their community effectively they'd the device in their hand had fixated them on self and the organization of self so that that's the closest i've seen there's there's no peer-reviewed substantial work saying that social media specifically is bad for mental health there's plenty of things along the way and and broadly you know these you know there's plenty of contributing factors that if people have bad mental health that you know but i don't think there's any causal link that says this dot 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 that so you know but open-minded if if it comes along i think it will help us understand the way that we're building society in a more effective way yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything has two, three sides to the story, doesn't it? So, mm. you know, it's not to say there's that one causal link that, that creates that, but um, I think it's uh, it is dependent on various factors, of course. Mm. I mean, there's that really interesting documentary that's just come out called The Social Dilemma. I don't know if you've seen it yet. No, no, I haven't. No. So, I mean, actually, you mentioned California, and, and that is a lot of studies that they do cite tends to stem from California, interestingly, so, and, and particularly with young people. But yes, but go, going back to the workplace and, and people of, of working age, um, I think it's just a matter of balancing, you know, different um, aspects of life in general, isn't it? And making sure that those boundaries are in place and that you know what works for you because it's different mm. for everybody, isn't it? And, and when you were talking about remote working, um, so especially as now we're in, you know, much more of a remote working setup for, for many of us these days. Um, what would you say your tips are for building an empowered work culture remotely and making sure that remote work feels satisfying? I think um, you need some degree of a highway code. So you, I, I think the thing that a lot of people have found exhausting is that they've there's always been a reason for another call. There's always been a reason for another video video meeting as someone someone looking at your diary can say, I saw a gap and I've put a meeting in. And the the impact of that is that we feel surveilled, but we also feel a total absence of autonomy. We feel like, okay, I was planning to use my Thursday morning to get everything cleared, to get everything done. And I've constructed my day around that. Someone's seen a gap and filled it. And that's, I think, one of the challenges. One of the, uh, when I worked at Twitter, a lot of the engineers had built no meeting Thursday. Because the joy of powering through work, of feeling unsh- unshackled, that you're able to get stuff done, is really liberating. When we look into very simple, self-evident piece of research, when we look into people saying that they've had a good day at work, the largest determinant of whether people say they've had a good day at work is if people feel like they've made progress in something meaningful. And if you find yourselves on continuous Zoom calls, if you find yourselves mm-hmm. constantly trying to answer Slack pings, then you, you don't feel like you've made progress, but more just sort of held back the tide. So I think, you know, having an understanding of what satisfaction at work looks like can actually help us create a more rewarding form of work. Mm, absolutely. And um, another part of your book that I really enjoyed reading about was the research behind laughter. <laughs> that was so, um, so enjoyable to read. And, you know, when you're looking at ways to prevent burnout and nurture positive mental health, um, which is what this podcast is about as well, you know, looking at ways to nurture positive mental health. Um, so you cite the importance of ensuring laughter features in your day. And I quote, not only does it build trust, helps us bond with one another, but the relaxation brought about by laughter opens our minds to creative thinking. So can you tell us a little bit more about this insight? 
Yeah, I would, I was, uh, I've been fortunate to chat to a couple of the leading experts on laughter. Professor Robert Provine passed away uh, this time last year, but was a wonderful source of knowledge on it. And, you know, he points out that while there's somewhere in the region of 100,000 academic papers on anxiety and stress, there's around 100 on laughter because just academics see it as slightly trivial. They see it as, as not one of the big themes, not one of the weighty issues that need resolving. So, you know, I was really intrigued by it because when you look into to laughter, um, quite often when you look into stress situations, laughter seems to permeate it. I chatted to a someone who'd gone into an Afghani Camp Bastion uh, field hospital, and he said, "If I if I if you ask me to describe one thing that characterised the culture in that hospital, I would say laughter." Hang wow. on, you've got people coming in who you know whether they're. Um, enemy combatants or whether they are their own soldiers you know you've got people coming in in a gravely terrible situation and you're saying the one thing you'd use to characterize it is laughter I chatted to firefighters firefighters uh, he, he said you know what I would describe about my job is that I laughed every day no matter how bad it was I laughed every day and I said to him you know could you go home? I said, there was a gentleman. I, I said to him, could you go home? Could you chat to your partner about what you laughed about? He said, absolutely never. Absolutely. If I told her what we laughed about, she would judge me for it. <laughs> so what do we learn from that? We learn that laughter is an incredible way to, for human beings to relate to something, but also to deal with the impact of stress. But actually, Provan goes further. He says that the majority of times that we find that people in work situations laugh with each other, mm -hmm. it's where they, not where there's something funny has happened, but it's a moment of connection. So, you know, you might witness it. You'll be on a call with someone. Someone will say, it's Jeff's turn next. Good luck with that, Jeff. Not funny, but everyone in the room will laugh. <laughs> or someone will say, good luck with that. Uh, you know, and, you know, it's, there's just these moments where superficially, Anyone on the outside wouldn't find these things funny. He says, like really memorable phrase. He said, laughter is an impoverished bird song, human bird song, meaning it's in the same way that birds sing to connect with each other. Um, mm. They they sing to sort of twit to woo. They they sing to sort of to um, to to forge links with each other. Um, the laughter is the same. Laughter is a way for us to signal that we are connected with each other. And the, I mentioned there was a, I chatted to a couple of people, Professor Sophie Scott, who's a, a British professor. She said that laughter is the closest thing to anyone who's got a dog will witness that when two dogs play together, um, quite often one of the dogs will lean forward on its front two legs uh, and it does something which is, um, it's a, a, literally a downward dog. Anyone who does yoga, well, it's literally a downward dog. But what that signals to the dog, like atavistically programmed into their head, no one's taught them this. But that, what that signals to the dog is no harm. No harm will happen here. This is all messing around. So what you'll sometimes see is a dog will go down its hind legs like that, but then just go to, to bite the other dog. And the other dog knows this is a joke. It's a joke. Hmm. Now, what laughter does, it signals the same. It signals that, you know, no harm will happen here. We're all friends together. So as a consequence, you know, you might, you might all be laughing and then you say something that's a bit close to the bone. But everyone knows, look, you know, we're connecting. It's a moment of connection. So what you do when you study laughter is you realize, firstly, the best teams laugh. I was fortunate. The, um, I chatted to someone who was embedded with one of the 
uh, the boat race teams, a, a Cambridge boat race team, I think from, uh, from 2000. And he spent a lot of time with them. And he said, the one thing I'd say is that, you know, Cambridge had come off three back-to-back defeats, but they'd got someone in their boat who um, everyone in, in boat racing, they measure every metric. So they put them side by side. They know who's fastest, who's strongest, who's got the most endurance. And normally it becomes down to you pick the, the, the fastest six, is it in a boat race? Pick the fastest six. And they, um, the, uh, they had someone in their midst who was hilarious. And they, all of the rowers in the boat uh, got the, the selector fired um, and they took over the selection and they chose the hilarious person, the hilarious guy, and they installed him in the boat, even though his metrics were off the chart, not as good. And they won the boat race. Now, look, there's so many levels of stuff going on in that because they, 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 they effectively, the organism, the, the team knew what was right for it better than the selectors and the selectors were like no that guy's not in and they said well that in, in that case we're not rowing the team overcome the team put someone who was objectively worse in the boat fascinating podcast i did on this chatting to the guy they put someone objectively worse in the boat but the way he made everyone in that boat feel they effectively had this sort of superpower where they could do a better result and time and time again, whether you look into what I've said there, it forges a connection between us. It helps us reset. It builds resilience in, in difficult moments. You know, time and time again, if you look into it, laughter is basically the, the greatest free gift that anyone can, uh, can afford their team. Now, mm-hmm. You know, what's critical right now is that I run a poll on social media in the middle of lockdown. I said, do you feel like you're laughing less or more than you used to. Two thirds of people said, I'm laughing less. We generally laugh more, not at screens, but when we're around people. If you, an audience for a comedy show will laugh a lot more than those individuals at home watching that same comedy show uh, on their TV. Mm. Laughter is this contagious thing. It forges connection between us. I think the more that we can think about that, the more that we can build strong, cohesive teams. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even just talking about laughter like that whole time you were talking I had this big smile on my face and (laughs) I kept even feeling like I was gonna laugh you know it's totally something in that that it is contagious for sure um and you know those examples that come to mind for me as well when you think about being in a room it's like you said it is being around people that that does come to mind more but you know one person will start laughing at something ridiculous and you don't even necessarily find that thing funny but their laughter makes you laugh and then after a while you realize you just got this ongoing like you say bird song of laughter going on um that's fantastic so there you go there's a few really key takeaways from today is the you know laughter is a human bird song was it and um, right. and we love to be loved but we need to be needed i think that was very mm. beautiful as well thank you thank you bruce and um, let's just quickly talk about your podcast and um, tell us a little bit about it and uh, the, the people that you have been interviewing you've got an amazing roster of um interviewees yeah you know it's sort of self-directed learning really so it, more than anything else i contact people who um Quite often I read something about, you know, how can we build stronger, cohesive teams? How can we feel more connected to each other? Uh, And then I read something and then in the footnotes or in the academic papers, they're talking about 
talking about something else. I find myself reading them and then end up getting in touch with them. Um, the, the one thing I'm really fascinated with right now is that um, I read someone saying that, you know, every organization is going to have to hire community managers. And I thought, oh, that's a really interesting thought, mm. you know, because in the way that we might have built workplaces before, now we're going to have to develop a sense of community amongst people who might be just connected via their screens. And so as a consequence of that, I've, uh, I've read like three books on community in the last two weeks and I've, I've interviewed one person, I'm interviewing another two people and I'll build some podcasts out of that. Or, you know, I've chatted to, um, I've chatted to academics all around the world. Generally, I don't have bosses on. Normally what happens with bosses is firstly, almost every organization I've worked in, the boss wasn't responsible for the culture. And secondly, the bosses often have this sort of, version of the truth that I don't think is necessarily that reliable so you know bosses will often say oh you know I made this decision and did this and it, it just proves unsatisfying as a podcast guest mm. but I, I've done I think about I've, I've done 105 of them so these like quite an extensive back catalogue if people are looking to interpret the way that we might go back to the office i've done about 10 episodes on that recently Brilliant. or if people are trying to work out what workplace culture looks like when we're not in the office every day i've been very fixated on that so yeah just um it's a, a personal obsession really <laughs> that's fantastic um so that's eat sleep work repeat and uh, it's the number one business podcast at the moment you must be very proud yeah, I mean, it goes up and down. So sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, when it is, I'm, I'm thrilled. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, is there anything else you've got coming up at the moment that you'd like to share with us? And, and how can people connect with you? More than anything, the best thing to do is to follow my newsletter. Um, so I do a weekly newsletter, which is pretty much just an aggregation of some of the, the biggest articles, what people are talking about with regards to return to work, what does work culture look like, how can we deal with these changes, you know, quite often I try and put some of the research in there. So, so that evidence, Morgan Stanley say that uh, 25% of offices are going to be unoccupied in four years. Wow, that's wow. that's really major. And so I put that in there so that if someone's having a discussion in their workplace and their boss is like, no, everyone's back to work, you know, this is a temporary blip, then they can at least say, look, I really respect you saying that, but the bosses of Barclays, the bosses of um, BP, the bosses of Siemens have all come out and said this, we should probably at the very least reflect the fact that we compete with these people for hiring. And so, you know, the challenge, I met one organization the other day, they said everyone back to the office five days a week. I said, fascinating, but next time you're looking to hire someone, top talent, you'll say to them, uh, they'll say, and what's the working? You say five days a week in the office. And they'll say, okay, yeah, I, I, kind of love my mondays and fridays at home <laughs> and if you if you've got some of them into the office they'll say okay thank you so much but i'm going to say no so immediately whether you believe that this is something that you have to listen to or not it's going to be on your it's going to be on your table i think unless companies are thinking about that then they're missing an opportunity so i put all of that into the newsletter if you go to eat sleep work you get the link right at the very top fantastic so it's all about making work better 
Fantastic. And then and really, really important in this day and age, um, you know, even yeah. more than ever before. Thank you so, so much for your time today, Bruce. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Pleasure. So thank you all so much for connecting and for joining us for this podcast episode. And very much look forward to connecting with you again soon. Take care. Take Regular Breaks is hosted by me, Tanya Diggory, and has been produced by our team here at Karma. Our show is mixed and edited by Amari Carter. Our original theme music is by Oliver Sudden and our design is by Longevity. You can listen to our show on Spotify and other popular streaming platforms. For more information on Karma and our mental health and wellbeing services, visit www.thisiskarma.com. Thank you for listening and I look forward to connecting with you again soon.